Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. What was happening at the time the, the Protestant Reformation erupted? Um, and, you know, there were a few things. There were abuses of, of power um, among the church. There was very significant rapid change in technology. Um, this is where the printing press was developed. Um, there was a lot of confusion about religious authority. And you think of those as the, the biggest factors that kind of caused caused a crisis that that Reformation answered. All of those exact same factors are very prominently in the water right now. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week. And go leave a rating and review. It's easy. It only takes a second, and it helps us find new listeners to the show. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars. It really is that easy. Thank you so much. And also find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, threads, YouTube, anywhere you get social media at Shifting Culture Podcast. I post a lot of quotes and video clips. Uh, it would be fun to interact with you there. So come find us on social media. Previous guests on the show have included David Fitch, Jessica Schrock Ringenberg, and Mark Baker. You can go back, listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Megan Larissa Good. Megan is lead pastor at Trinity Mennonite Church in Phoenix, Arizona. She is a frequent preacher and lecturer at churches and universities across the country, speaking on subjects such as biblical interpretation, contemporary preaching, and Christianity's next reformation. Megan is the author of The Bible Unwrapped, Making Sense of Scripture Today and Divine Gravity, Sparking a Movement to Recover a Better Christian Story. She lives in Phoenix, Arizona, with a prized dinosaur bone and a ridiculously large book collection. Megan and I have a great discussion around themes from her latest book, Divine Gravity. How can we enter into a new reformation that helps the body of Christ look more like Jesus? Jesus can lead us into this new space and new time. We can disagree with each other and still have unity. We could follow the discernment of the Holy Spirit. We could have a cross-shaped power, which is a power under and not a power over. We can join Jesus in the reconciliation of all things. Jesus is making all things new. So let's join him and get on the ride. So join us as we discuss whether or not we are in a new reformation that will help us look more like Jesus. Here is my conversation with Megan Larissa Good. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on today. So glad to be talking with you. 
as a pastor, as somebody in the body of Christ, how are you experiencing this cultural moment of the church today in the West particularly? These are really challenging times. <laughs> you know, I've been in pastoral ministry 15 years, and I was told going in that we were facing a time of change. Um but I, I think I would have found it very difficult to believe, even at the front of the ministry 15 years ago, how rapidly things could change and how much the questions that people would be asking, the questions that I would be asking would have shifted. Um, so I, I think for me, the last three or four years in particular has felt like uh, just just a kind of groundswell of change in attitudes and conversations and I would describe it as truly feeling the reality of a post-Christian environment that we've been talking about for a long time. So then what does that start to look like as you're feeling this reality of a post-Christian moment? We feel like there's a transition that's happening and we're in the midst of it. We could feel shaking. Um, what kind of shaking is happening? What are some some highlights of uh, the way that we view the world is moving in a different direction? I mean, I certainly think one of the central hubs of the shakiness is uh, around how we think about authority. Like, where is authority held in Christianity and the world in general? <laughs> like, how do we know what is true? Um, and I, I think pastors probably feel that acutely in a certain sense, because some of us were taught in seminary to get up in the pulpit and just sort of assume authority based on a role. And we are in a cultural moment now where that role no longer carries the same kind of authoritative weight. Um, so that there's particular questions, I think, in the life of the church about where is the authority held? How is it distributed? Um, and, and that trickles down to all sorts of questions that everybody has sitting in the pews. How do I know which voice to trust? There are so many voices saying so many different things. What? How do I navigate the tension between between what I'm hearing. And I think this is this is a question that has been unfolding in the West for a while, ever since the Enlightenment, and when science introduced new questions of alternative sources of authority that weren't religious. Um, but what is particularly accelerated in this moment, I think, is is a feeling of instability, even in the answers to science, right? What what can be trusted when even facts are beginning to get murky? Um, so that's one big area where I think people are feeling it most. Well, then let's dig into that because that's I think that's uh, <laughs> something we all have a lot of questions around that. And so power, authority, um, and where do we get the authority is and a lot of people say, let's just go back to the Bible. So let's let's take that that angle to start with, uh, because people say, oh, if the authority is the Bible, then we know exactly what to do. Um, but it seems like people take biblical authority in different directions, right? So then how do we decipher and determine where the authority lies and how we can actually determine where we go from here and to cut out all of the noise in regards to the authority of the Bible and scripture itself? This is, I think, what makes this era in Christianity itself really exciting to me and, and such an interesting time to be alive. Um, because almost exactly 500 years ago, the church 
under, underwent this kind of epic period we now call the Protestant Reformation, where at that time the question of authority was in the foreground too. And, and part of what had developed during that time um, was that, that for a long period in the church's history, there had been a lot of authority vested in the Pope or in church hierarchy in particular leaders. And that authority was undermined in a variety of ways, both by corruption and abuse in the church, um, also by different popes both competing for authority. Um, there was a, a new movement in biblical scholarship that called into question previous ways the Bible was interpreted and and left a lot of traditions that the church had been practicing for a long time kind of stranded without a biblical underpinning. So all those kind of shifts in that moment 500 years ago created this question, or, or I would call it more a crisis around authority, that, that led to an entire movement of Protestantism that said authority is vested in Scripture. Um, but after we've had 500 years now to, to play out that insight, and I think we have hit a bit of a wall at the moment because one of the things we've discovered is that saying authority is vested in scripture doesn't yet say how scripture is read and interpreted. And the Protestant reformers kind of initially had the idea, well, if we all just read the, this book and trust it, we're going to come to the same conclusions about it. And it, it turns out that the Bible is not fully self-interpreting. Um, so, so I think what is happening in this moment is in many ways we are completing the movement that the Protestant Reformation began by returning to that question of authority and asking the, the deeper one beneath it, um, not just scripture, but who and how <laughs> and by what power do we read? Um, so, you know, the, the whole path the church has been on for these five centuries, I, I think, has been leading us toward that question and perhaps a more... Um, I don't know, this is a this is a judgment statement, but a, a more rich and nuanced understanding of the way that scripture interacts with the spirit and the church, which are our partners in that act of interpretation. The logical follow-up then is what does that look like? How do we start to then interpret, read scripture in a way that is faithful to Jesus and the church can be be centered on Jesus and not just centered on uh, the the book, the Bible, um, but it could be read in a way where Jesus uh, is at the forefront and is centered. Yeah. So one of the things that many Christians I talk to are, are kind of unaware is a fairly modern phenomenon is to read the Bible in, in what we might describe as a flat way, where if you want to know what God thinks on a given subject, you kind of, you look in the subject index and you pull out every verse that mentions that subject and you combine them in some way to get a sort of range of options. Um, how does God want me to treat enemies? Well, it's somewhere between loving them and genocide. Like the, that is the range of, biblically speaking, what we've got. <laughs> um, but historically, when the early church asked that question of what is what is God's authoritative word for us as the, the people of Jesus, they understood that Jesus is the kind of central revelation of God who now serves as as the interpretive lens for everything else. So all of our reading of the Bible, all of our, our questions about what is the will of God or around whatever question we face, um, it is kind of run through the lens of Jesus. And that's a really 
radical thought for some. And yet, if you read the writings of the early church, this is very much the kind of interpretation they were practicing, that you start with Jesus and you read backwards and forwards from what he reveals about the character of God and the heart of God. And I've become convinced if there's one practice that could completely transform Christianity in our time, it would be rediscovering that early Christian practice of reading through the Jesus lens. Uh, if we trust that as our core revelation of God, it it provides us a lead for how to kind of put the pieces together and narrow the field that genocide to turn the other cheek, like how do we position ourselves well, that question changes when we say, let's ask it in light of Jesus. So why do you think that the that the church or some aspects and, and places of Christianity have not read the Bible through a Jesus lens? You know, I, I think there are various answers in different times in history. Um but one of the things that happened more recently in more modern era is that as people got more literate, um, they began to think textually in a different way than earlier Christians would have um, when cultures were largely verbal. And what people were holding was kind of the, the core stories of Jesus that they're shaping their life around. Um, and I mean, that that's a very... I guess, broad way of talking about why we are where we are. But I I think we've been trying to learn a more nuanced approach to thinking about what do we have in this very complex book um, that has been developed by the Christian community, listening to God over many, many centuries and millennia. Um, And that's just not as simple of a task as we might wish that it was. It's not simple. You're saying that we can't. <laughs> so if only. <laughs> if only it is. So you did actually say then one of the things that we need to do is to have the the Holy Spirit and the the church help us in this in this way. So how how does the Holy Spirit and the church help in this way? Yeah. Well, let me just start with the church because this is one of the things that has gotten a little wonky as Christianity has interacted with this Western value called individualism is we, we've kind of, many of us have grown up in churches that kind of give the impression that the the best way to read the Bible is to be a Christian alone with the Bible on on your knee. Um, and, and there, God certainly speaks that way. I mean, I've had life-changing encounters with God through scripture by myself um, with with my Bible. But the, the problem with reading alone is we're left with our own lenses and experiences and biases as the as the kind of framework surrounding what we read. Um, but the Bible was written, compiled, carried through history as a communal document by a community that that has interpreted it through its own life, lived out collectively. Um, so I, I think it's difficult to say in kind of the light of all of Christian history that the Bible could or should be read in any way apart from a community living it together. Um now, the Spirit always gets me a bit excited. It stirs up my inner charismatic. <laughs> um, because part of what Jesus taught very clearly and, and is woven into the, the New Testament witness of Jesus' teachings is that when, when he departed, when he was done teaching his disciples, he specifically tells them in John he's going to have more to say. 
he says, I have more to say to you. You can't handle it now, but that's okay because I'm sending this person on my behalf who will continue to speak. Um, so, so Jesus explicitly defines the spirit he's sending as one who will speak on his behalf and and carry his teachings forward into new contexts and new questions that the first century disciples in you know in their fishing village in Palestine haven't fathomed yet. <laughs> you know the questions of of drones and you know all sorts of technology we're facing couldn't possibly have been on their radar. But but Jesus says like don't panic about that because I'm sending I'm sending an interpreter who's going to sit with you in what I've taught and help you understand what God's living word is for the moment that you'll be facing ahead. Um, So that conversation partner comes together with the foundational teachings of Jesus in the church um, to to keep drawing those teachings forward. There's a lot of people that that take this this spirit or the the so-called spirits, interpret it by themselves, give it to a community and say, come follow me. Um, and, and what I want and what I see and how I interpret and how the spirit speaks. How can we we actually listen to the spirit because the Holy Spirit lives with us? Like we have the Holy Spirit now and it's pretty amazing. Like his disciples didn't have it while Jesus was was with them, but now we have the Holy Spirit. I think that's fascinating and incredible that that is true. But there's all sorts of even, you know, the authority question, the power question, there is a misappropriation of uh, e- even either the, the language of Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit is speaking. And so we need to go this direction or it's it is perverting it to to give power to somebody or an institution where that's not where it actually belongs. It belongs in the hands of, of Jesus how, so what is the dynamic of listening to the Spirit and following the lead of the Holy Spirit in a way where it is faithful to Jesus and can help us move forward in a healthy way and not a, in a destructive way? Yeah, I think it's one of the strangest and most unfortunate aspects of how Christianity is currently fractured, that often the people who are most excited about listening to the Spirit are least grounded in the teachings of Jesus. Um, so the first thing I would say is like if you're gonna if you're going to have the the audacity to believe that God still speaks and to try to listen for it, like you better be grounding yourself very deeply in the defining revelation of God and Jesus to start with, um, because that that core defining revelation doesn't change. And, and in fact, the reason that the church thought it was so urgent to put together this book we call the canon, um, a, a canon, the word canon that we use for the Bible. It was the word for a measuring reed, like a measuring stick. <laughs> so the whole the whole purpose was to say, like, humans are prone to all kinds of delusions of grandeur and other things, but we're going to start with a definitive measure given to us by Jesus of what God is like, what God's core character is, what God's core desires are. Um, so until until you're grounded in that kind of starting place, um, you're you're dangerous, right? That's where that's where the listening begins. Um, but the two other practices I would say are really important that are often neglected is one we do it together, um, and not just together in general, but but it's really important in the the early church practice discernment in a diverse community. Um, you see this in Acts chapter fifteen when when the early church is getting together 
discerning an area of controversy, something Jesus didn't address directly. And they're asking, what would God want on this circumstance we're facing with people coming into the church that we never expected to be here? Um, and part of what they did to make that decision was they drew together a, a gathering of people who were quite diverse in character. You have you have Paul, who's a, a bit of a radical, who's just like, bring them all in. And you have James, who is a known scripture-loving, you might, you might call him a conservative of his era. And you put these diverse people together in a room and invite them to listen to each other's stories and examine scripture together in ways that create some healthy friction, right? That, that invite them to interact with what each other is sensing and hearing. Um, so that diverse community is one. And then a third piece that I think is often underestimated is just the role of time. Um, that we get in a hurry. We want to know what the definitive answer is. And so we we tend to make quick revelations with a level of certainty that we don't actually possess. So whatever we're telling ourselves and that the early church understood, and you could see this in their decision-making process again in the book of Acts, that, that the proof of the pudding is in what happens over time. So you can make a tentative judgment and say, this seems right to the Spirit and us as the community. We think this is where God is. Um, but the real test is then to live that out together for a time and see whether the fruit of the Spirit are being produced in the aftermath of that decision. And sometimes we can feel really good about a decision on the front end, but find the fruit that is forming in that aftermath are, are kind of forming away from the fruit of the spirit that is the way we recognize where God's at. So that that need for time, that need for holding things humbly and tentatively is really crucial in in how we kind of hold and execute our outcomes of discernment. That's really good. I have a friend that you know that worked in, in Central Asia, led a movement uh, of Jesus followers of many, many uh, thousands of people. And one of the big things that they were struggling with were uh, was polygamy and multiple wives and what that looks like. And so as the leaders of that movement, the indigenous leaders were asking this cross-cultural worker, what should we do? He said, you know, what does this story of scripture say? What does the Bible say? Here's everywhere they talk about uh, marriage in the Bible um, and what it looks like. And it literally took seven years going back and forth of saying, okay, God allows it in this setting over here. We need to take care. There was a big earthquake. We need to take care of the widows in this way. Um, and then, so it took seven years for them to come to a final judgment. Uh, and that's not something that you want to, you know, you write home to your uh, financial supporters about and saying, <laughs> we're in this the deep, long process of discerning the Holy Spirit together um, and what it looks like for, you know, do we practice polygamy or not? Um, and at the moment they do, um, but we'll see what happens later. Um, and so it takes time. I think one of the way reasons why we don't want it to take time, I think, is the world fe feels very fast right now. It feels like it's changing so fast that we can't keep up anymore. Um, and so because of that, we have to discern, make decisions quickly or else we're going to be left in the dust. So then as a community where we say we're going to discern together, we're going to follow the, the spirit together, and we're going to let it take some time, 
how can we do that in this fast culture that we live in? That's such a good question. And the whole time you were (laughs) describing that scenario with like discerning polygamy, which is a really good example of how how this plays out in concrete context. I was thinking that so much of our ability to give it this time and to hold that space really depends on the clarity of our image of who God is and what God's character is. And because I think one of the reasons we get rushed is because the, the culture is moving so fast and we feel external pressure. But there's also an internal pressure that comes from a lot of our images of God that are saying we have to get this right. Like, we, <laughs> we have to get this right. We've got to get it right right now. We can't afford to screw it up. And and we carry this level of anxiety into our discernment and into our relationships with each other, um, a, a sense of threat that, like, if we wait too long, you know, we'll we'll have done irreparable damage. Or if we if we allow someone else to be wrong, as we see it, I mean, a, a God who invites us into this kind of process of discernment, a, a God who gives us the Spirit and invites us into this dialogue and living into holiness is a God who has a great deal of grace for the process. And that's one of the things I think we can look at looking at creation itself. Like God is not in a hurry. Um, God is more invested in relationship than quick outcomes and in, in full development of mature thinkers in the image of Jesus than, than in just getting the result. And so if we can if we can cut each other that slack and ourselves that slack to say the most important thing here is not that we be right or we be right the fastest, but that that we be in relationship with God and each other and and moving in a direction of Jesus shaped transformation. Um, I, I think keeping that vision clear in our minds will help reduce at least some of that anxiety and pressure. That, that causes us to overreach or move too quick. I think we, we move too quick. And also we, we disagree a lot <laughs> of, yeah. in community. <laughs> and I, I mean, there's a, I think there's a reason why we have over 40,000 Protestant denominations in the world is we disagree and we're like, we're going to start our own thing with the people that agree together. Um, yes. And so <laughs> we're not uh, comfortable with, disagreement and and all of this tension that we have in the body of Christ. Um, but without this tension, you know, things aren't going to be held up. Um, it's just going to uh, fall apart. Um, and we see that in silos and in like echo chambers and we all disagree. We go way off. Like you find lots of heresy and a whole bunch of things when that happens. So how can we live in tension together, disagree well, um, and not fracture? Yeah. You know, I we could talk about this at different levels, but I want to start with the local community because I am a local church pastor. And this is one of one of the subjects I think my my church is, has wrestled with the most in its life together because we're a pretty theologically, politically diverse church. Um, and and asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus with each other when we disagree on things that we have really strong convictions about? And I had a really interesting conversation a while back with uh, some people who were newer to my church who came and said, like, we love a lot of what's going on here. Like, we're excited to be a part of this community. But there's this big question that we disagree with the majority of the church on. 
And, you know, how do we sit with that? What do we do with that? What does that mean for our time here? And it was a really interesting conversation because rather than just asking, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> the way we normally have the conversation, just like, have you have you met the bar, check the boxes to like be in? Um, we instead had a conversation about like, what core convictions do you have about Jesus that underlie this belief that you have? And it, it turned out that, you know, I don't agree with them on the position they have, but the core beliefs they have about Jesus beneath it that are supporting that conviction are things I'm completely on board with and think are not only really important, but but in danger of getting lost often in the conversation with the majority in my community. Um, so, so these people who are holding perhaps a minority theological position, but doing it for, for reasons that have real weight— um, you know, I, I said to them, like, you may not agree on exactly where we're at, but I can tell you that your voice is needed here for us to continue to see aspects of the character of Christ that we don't tend to talk about as much, right? And and so, like, if you are willing to bring that healthy bit of friction so that we can learn and you can learn, um, I think we're all going to be richer for that. Um, and I, I honestly wasn't sure what they would make of that pitch for being a difference. Um, but they said yes and opted in. And I think over time, I'm just like celebrating more and more the the fruitfulness of that position where if we're able to watch, not just for like the issues, because that's we all get triggered by the issues. Uh, did people take position A or B? But ask them, why Why are you holding this position? And get to the underlying convictions. There's often a lot more that's important and in common below the surface than the position itself indicates. And I think recognizing that is one of the kind of breakthrough keys for communities to be able to worship together and exist together, even with some significant differences, is to say, like, what, these differences matter, they're important, but there are core things shared beneath them that are holding all of them up. There's a common allegiance to Jesus, a common desire to be obedient to the kingdom of Jesus. And like, can we identify those things we're sharing and not only talk about the, the different position outcome? I think some people think that their position outcome is so important because they follow a certain type of Jesus. Uh, how do we have core convictions and and know these core things about Jesus that are in common? What what Jesus are we following? How do we know what Jesus we are following? Well, let me step off that for a second, I guess, and ask the, the question that occurs to me before that is just one, one of the things we learned from Jesus about doing this is Jesus has among his disciples um, a guy named Simon, who we're told is a zealot, who... I mean, to be a, a zealot is basically to be someone who is supporting the violent overthrow of Rome. And Jesus has Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who is collecting money to basically feed Rome's troops. And, you know, in terms of the like divisions of the day, you could not get two people more polar opposite in their belief about where God is in the Roman occupation of the Jewish land. And yet Jesus deliberately and prayerfully seeks out these two diverse people. And I can't imagine what they thought when they saw each other sitting at the table the day Jesus is like, hey guys, um, meet the other the other people I invited for this party. Um, but that should, I think, signal to some 
something to us about Jesus's intent in this. And his focus, not just on, again, these are people with opposite positions, but on the kind of heart orientation toward God and the desires of God. Um, so what Jesus is looking for is not just the the position they stand in space, but the trajectory of their movement, the orientation of their heart and being. Um, so, so that, I guess, is just a way of grounding this in the character of Jesus himself. Do you want to loop back on which Jesus? I want to loop back on just which <laughs> Jesus are we following. And I think that's, I mean, that's yeah. important. That is the character of Jesus, and he's going to invite yep people from diverse backgrounds and have different viewpoints to be able to follow him. And how do we know which which Jesus we are now following? I have found it fascinating. I've been teaching the Bible for quite a few years now. And um, in the last year or two, that has become the number one question I get asked everywhere I go. Christians want to know, like, which which Jesus are we talking about? And it's it's a messy question, like so many of these are, because <laughs> there's no there's no cheap answer. Like if there's if there's one thing we have learned and we've already discussed this with scripture is people we bring our own experiences our own culture as a lens and there's no way around the the messiness of God choosing to relate to us in a relational way like this. But that being said, I think there are also some fairly simple practical common sense ways of saying to to say to say that we can have different angles or perspectives or lenses on Jesus isn't to say that like everything goes. Um, because what, what we're given in scripture is some very concrete stories with some, some, some trajectories perhaps are ambiguous, but some are quite clear. Like it, it would be very difficult to read Jesus and take him seriously and argue Jesus doesn't care a lot about the poor. Um, you know, it's it's unmistakably all over his teachings. So there are certain trajectories that open when you follow Jesus, and there are certain trajectories that close. Um, so, so part of the the process of discerning which Jesus is is beginning a, a dialogue about like what things are do we think are clearest in the teachings of Jesus? What what are least disputable? And and I certainly would say that chief among those you see in the writings of Paul and in all of the New Testament writers, really, that the, the core revelation of Jesus is found in his cross, um, which is why, you know, a significant portion of every gospel is devoted to this last week of Jesus's life. A huge portion of the New Testament letters are exploring the implications. So if we want to know which Jesus, I can't imagine a more kind of biblical starting point than to say, well, which Jesus? The Jesus who died on the cross. Um, for love of his enemies. Like, if if there's one window that is is the starting point, that is most defining, the, the clearest vision of God we get, it's this. So perhaps we, we might start by saying, what do we learn from the Jesus hanging on the cross about who God is? And and then let's kind of carry that out in, into the rest of what we see. This is a, This is a fun one. Why don't we love our enemies? Why can't we follow Jesus to love our enemies? Why is there war and hatred and among and I, I'll just among believers uh, with okay. other people? And I'm not just talking about non-believers around the world. I'm talking about with believers who claim Jesus, who say, "I follow Jesus. I want to walk in the ways of Jesus," and yet they there are enemies and they want to fight them. What and not love them? How? Why don't we 
love our enemies? Well, there, there would be complicated answers and really simple ones. But my, my simple answer that I think it becomes really important theologically is like, this is what evil does. Like, Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. <laughs> and like, there, there's no better road to anti-God chaos than to set people against each other. Um, that That is the chief strategy <laughs> by which the world's fractured. So this is part this is part of what Jesus came to heal and we are still getting played thinking that we can we can get God's kingdom by using Satan's strategies. <laughs> it's not just about being divisive, I think, but the things we do to each other once we divide. Like the feeling that it is righteous to to crush your enemies, that God's kingdom can somehow be established by putting down the wrong people. Um, that's exactly the pitch that Jesus that Satan makes to Jesus in his temptations. Like Jesus just bow to me, just use my methods and you can have your whole kingdom. Like I'll let you do that justice thing. Just do it my way and we'll be fine. Um and Jesus doesn't fall for it, but the church has been falling for it for two thousand years. <laughs> it's it's a wily strategy and I get so excited about talking about it because I think what a revolution it would be for the world if the followers of Jesus finally took him seriously on this. And when he says there is a different kind of power that turns the world, it's a power under, it's a cross-shaped power. Um, the world hasn't seen yet what could happen with a church that took that seriously. I guess that's not exactly fair. We did for a while in the early church, right? And we saw an explosion of the Jesus way across the world. Um but man, is the time right for a rediscovery of that? Yeah. Well, let's rediscover it. Let's <laughs> let's try to invert power and do what Jesus did and come humbly and also work actively for peace, be peacemakers. Uh, you know, Jesus, in that same sermon, he taught he called us to love our enemies. He also called us said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh what yeah. what does that look like? So how can we actively both subvert power, come in humbly, and actually make peace uh, in places where there is fracture and division. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of people trip on the peacemaking language because we think of peace as such like a passive thing about what you're not doing. I really like Paul's language that he uses often in his letters about reconciliation. Like that God's God's big project in the world is not like stopping the bad stuff. It's it's a right-making project. <laughs> it's a, a healing of all that's broken, a bridging of all that's divided, a reversing of entropy, <laughs> like however you want to talk about it. Um, all the pieces coming back together. When when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God, he's saying, like, this is the family business. Like, when you become one of my people, when you become a child of God, you are now in the reconciliation business. Um, you have some role to play wherever God has put you in the world. In, in bringing the healing, writing power of God to that piece of ground, to that space. And I, I think that's a commission that every Christian holds individually and that the church holds together. That I, I always have this image in my mind. I, I imagine it sort of like the world existing in black and white and that everywhere followers of Jesus go, like everywhere our foot touches down, starts to burst into color, right? Like that, that is the reconciling power of God bringing healing on the ground to every spot of creation that Jesus followers touch. Um, I think that is, that is the vision of Jesus. And that is, 
the thing that he sent the spirit to empower. Like each person is holding some little piece of that calling, some little gift of the spirit that is meant to be sown into some piece of soil for its flourishing, for the flourishing in the world. When we do it together, when the church gathers as a group, the the result of that is exponentially bigger, right? We can do it individually, but it's it's something magnitude greater when we do it in two or three or more. Mm. It feels like I have purpose now to join Jesus in the reconciliation of all things here on earth, and I, I get to be a part of it. I actually have a purpose here on earth, and it's not just to to wait uh, for his return or it's like, I'm going to hang out with him when I die. But I actually yes. have a, yep. a role and a vocation and a purpose here on earth. How do I know what what reconciliation piece I get or my my community of believers around me gets and we could enter into it and we could actively work for it and not just, you know, sit around and and, and do nothing, but we actually <laughs> are involved in this reconciliation business. How can we take a hold of it? Well, as a starting point, when, when people are trying to figure out, like, where is their piece of that? I, I think most people are prone to overthink it at the beginning. Let's assume that God, a providential God, has been involved in your life to this point and that you already are starting from a place in which you have had some leading to be. <laughs> so so rather than beginning the question asking, like, where should I be that isn't here um, to to carry this reconciling power of God, like, begin with the assumption that you are here right now, that you are filled with the reconciling spirit of God. And so there's something right in front of you that is fractured, that is broken, that is divided, that you have been empowered right now to kind of carry that too. And it doesn't have to be huge, right? You're, But what you're doing is just coming into the life you're already living with a new awareness, asking yourself the question, like, where, where is the, there a division that God is desiring to undo? Where is the wound that God is desiring to heal? Now, beyond that, it might well be the case that at some point the Holy Spirit says, I have an assignment for you <laughs> that is not currently on the ground where you're standing. And um, I, I sometimes like to say the Holy Spirit is God's project manager for this reconciliation project. It's, it's the job of the Spirit to deploy all of the church across the world to all the places it needs to be. Um, and this is why we all also need a a deep, regular uh, practice of prayerful listening um, to what God is saying. Because there are times when we may well experience that little nudge, even in a small thing, that nudge, that prompting. I remember this happened to me. I was trying to practice this this discipline myself, and I was out shopping one day, and I was walking through the parking lot back to my car, and I suddenly felt this like little nudging impulse that I should walk in the opposite direction away from my car. And I thought, well, that that's a really weird thing to do. Like I was just going to leave, but I I had been praying to like follow the leading of the spirit. So I walked in the other direction and um, heard these people call my name who were sitting at a table. And um, they said, well, it's the funniest thing. We were just talking about Jesus and like what Jesus is like and what he would want. And we were thinking who could answer our questions. And we thought about you and we looked up and you were right there. Um, you know, and I, that's an example of like paying attention to these nudgings and promptings is the spirit's way of kind of project managing, assigning us to be where God is already working in that moment. So I think we can trust that 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 leading will come as we are learning to kind of keep our senses open 
Um, but the get, beginning point is just to start where you are and, and believe God is already here and, and be looking for where the invitation is. You know, we've uh, we've talked a lot about uh, different themes in, in your, your new book, uh, Divine Gravity, which is fantastic. I really like it. Um, and I think, you know, you're setting us up to figure out, are we in a new new shaking, maybe in a new reformation, uh, like what happened 500 years ago? And if so, wh- what can we do to to really make it look more like Jesus uh, going yeah. forward? And then church should look more like Jesus, which I think is fantastic. Uh, can you, so why do you think this shaking that we're having, why do you think it is something, maybe this new reformation or this new renewal, something is happening that's going to change the tracks of the church for maybe for maybe even centuries? Well, I think part of it is, I think that because of looking at history and asking what was happening at the time the, the Protestant Reformation erupted, um, and, you know, there were a few things. There were abuses of, of power um, among the church. There was very significant rapid change in technology. Um, this is where the printing press was developed. Um, there was a lot of confusion about religious authority. And you think of those as the, the biggest factors that kind of caused caused a crisis that that Reformation answered. All of those exact same factors are very prominently in the water right now. We also are in a time when abuse of religious authority is a huge issue. Um, there's a lot of confusion about, or I'm sorry, abuse of power. There's a lot of confusion about religious authority. And of course, we are 40 years out from the greatest technological development since the printing press, which is the internet, and and dealing with all the ways dissemination of knowledge changes the environment we live in. So the conditions are strikingly eerily similar um, to what we saw at that time. Um, but in addition to those conditions, I think there's just the, the, the felt and lived experience that many of us are having right now, which is um, just, it seems like everyone I know is currently leaving the church, changing their church, asking questions about what they believe. Um, in, a, in a very short period, there's been a kind of, it's like all, everything flew up in the air and all of the, the pieces of the church are coming back down. And, you know, so many Christians I talked to who are still faithful Jesus followers are feeling very displaced and saying, why is the, I've been worshiping in this community forever. Like, why does it feel like my faith has suddenly taken this different turn that doesn't quite fit? <laughs> like, those are all signs of a, a radical reordering occurring. And nobody can say definitively from this point in history, like what that will look like in its outcome. I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of any any precedent for that kind of just shakeup and redistribution since 500 years ago, the last time it happened at such a large scale. I think we're we're feeling it. So, what are the the 95 theses that are, we're going to nail to the to the church door? Like, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> like, is there yeah. is there some things that that we go, okay, there's a reordering and there's something it's going to look uh, different. What are some of the a couple of ways that you think it might look different or we need to move in a di- this different direction and our churches and our communities will look so much more like Jesus uh, and we're going to be called back to faithfulness to him, to follow him in all that we do. You know, it's funny to hear you ask it that way because that that question was literally the question that birthed this book. <laughs> Someone would argue the conceit. 
like watching this happen in the church and having so many conversations, I was asking myself the question, like, you know, Luther in his day was able to just, you know, these famous 95 theses, if you read through them, they're not as exciting as one might think, given given what resulted from them. But he is just pointing out in some like fairly, one would think, obvious ways. Like, here's some ways that what the church is doing right now has parted ways with the historic witness of the church and with the gospel. Um, so I did that for myself and I thought, gosh, 95 is a lot. <laughs> and I came up with eight <laughs> that became this book. Um, but that are none of which are original at all. I mean, this is, this isn't, but Reformation is not about originality. It's about rediscovering fundamental things you've lost sight of. Um, so for me, for me, a few of those that I, I think, not just on the basis of my own, like, I hope this is true, but I, I think I'm seeing it happen with Christians from so many different traditions um, who are rediscovering that the Bible is read through the lens of Jesus. <laughs> That's the way it's meant to be read. That's been lost for a while now, but people are finding it. Um, people from traditions that never talked about the Holy Spirit are rediscovering there is a person in the Trinity called the Holy Spirit who still speaks and and can be heard. And um, people that you wouldn't expect. Um, people from so many traditions right now are rediscovering maybe salvation is not about getting on the escape train. Like Jesus just giving you a ticket so you can get out of Dodge. Um, maybe salvation actually is something to do with God reconciling the world, making earth as heaven. Um, so a bigger picture of salvation. Um, some of the more difficult conversations we had today, I think, are a part of it. Um, is there a way to disagree and still remain in Christi- Christian unity? Um, that's the part the last Reformation did terribly. They ended up killing each other over lots of things. Um, so dare to hope we could do better this time. But a, a different way to disagree. Um, a, a way to hold power <laughs> that isn't power over, but power under. Can we rediscover power as Jesus envisioned it? Um, so those are a few, maybe five of the eight <laughs> things I've been thinking about. But what really is striking to me is how this is emerging organically across like so many different communities. I have friends in the Episcopal Church and in Hillsong churches, just the Presbyterian churches, the entire spectrum who are somehow, like I would say through the Spirit's leading, like coming to converge on similar rediscoveries that that I, I think are rediscoveries that come straight out of the heart of Jesus. Like this is what the Spirit is doing in our time. And um, it's an exciting and terrifying time to be alive. <laughs> It is exciting and terrifying. And as we're going through it, a lot of people are going through trauma and and things are being exposed. And uh, I mean, there's sexual abuse in the church. There's power that's being abused, spiritual abuse. There's all sorts of abuse and and knowing that we're we're not wielding power properly um, and and other things. So what how do we hold on to Jesus? As the storm is hit, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. His disciples are afraid. He, we go to Jesus. We say, like, wake up. Don't you care about us? We're going to drown. And I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. Yeah, it's the- like there's this storm that is happening. Jesus, is, are you? why are you asleep in the back of the boat? Like, wake up. Do something about this. We're going to drown. Um and then, you know, Jesus calms the storm and he says, why don't you have faith? 
Uh, why were you afraid? <laughs> so how do we hold on to Jesus in this shaking moment where we all think we're going to drown, but Jesus <laughs> knows that we're not? He has us. One of the things I love about that story is that Jesus seems to imply they should have just assumed they would be fine. <laughs> you know, like, you're in the boat with me, guys. How did you think this is going to go? <laughs> but of course, nobody's inclined to think that in the moment. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what exactly to say about the visceral anxieties and fears we have. Um, at one level, what I would say for myself is like, I'm deeply afraid of many things about the experience of this moment. I'm afraid of failing my community as a leader. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, afraid of making the kind of mistakes that I said earlier were okay, <laughs> of discerning the wrong way, taking the wrong positions, all sorts of being too slow, being too fast. Like, I have a lot of fears. Um, but what I don't fear is that the story of Jesus is going to fall apart here. Like, the church has been through so many times of upheaval before, where it looked like everything was hitting the fan and coming apart, and and the church is still standing. I feel such deep confidence God's got this. And not just got this, but that this is a breaking that is for our healing. <laughs> that sometimes the bone has to kind of be broken to be reset. <laughs> and like that's a natural part of the cycle of repentance and transformation that is a part of following Jesus. So I, I think we just have to like hold our, our fear with like, we don't want this to hurt and it's going to hurt. Fair enough. <laughs> like, it's fair enough. <laughs> like, that fear is reasonable. Um, but hold that with also the knowledge that, like, God is not just in this. Like, God is one of the things driving this. And that the healing that is possible, the strengthening that is possible on the other side, it, it's always worth it. <laughs> right? It's always worth it on the other end. Um, and if nothing else, nothing else. Even if the ship does go down, disciples, God lives on the bottom of the sea too, right? Like that's the resurrection story. Jonah went down for three days and came back up. So um, however you experience this moment, whether whether it's sailing to the shore safely or whether you really feel like the boat is capsizing, um, God is there too. And and Christianity is not a a rescue story without facing the worst possibilities. It's a rescue story that says the worst possibilities can all happen and then resurrection. Um, that's our core story. So let's hold that together with our, our fears. Amen. Amen. Let's do that. If you could go back, Megan, to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? I feel like I would want my 21-year-old self <laughs> to understand that it's more important to dare faithfully <laughs> to try to follow, <laughs> to risk try to follow, than to be right or perfect all the time. And I, I think there are a lot of risks I didn't take um, that would have been kingdom faithful things because I was too worried about messing them up. And so I, I think I'm, I'm a recovering spiritual perfectionist. <laughs> and I wish that recovery had started earlier. Um, because I, for so long in my life, I held a view of holiness that seemed like it was easier to be holy under the bed by myself than it was to like be holy going out in the world, actually following Jesus where he's going. So I wish 21-year-old Megan would trust the grace of God a little more <laughs> and dare a little more. Mm, that's good. That's really good. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? 
I have a couple books that I, I would recommend that are kind of related to the themes we've been talking about today, and neither one of these are new. Um, but for those who haven't read a lot in the field of church history, um, there's a, a book by a man named Nathan Hatch called The Democratization of American Christianity that is a really interesting historical look, particularly if you're living in an American context, about about some of the ways that things many of us hold as faith tenants have have developed as an interaction between ancient Christian belief, but like Western cultural values. Um, so I just found so much of that book to like chew on and make me think uh, critically about some of the, the things I take for granted. <laughs> um, and another one that is is just a classic, if if any of your listeners haven't listened, a Marva Dawn's book, Power's Weakness and the Tabernacling of God, uh, is just an incredibly powerful reflection on power and just learning to see the character of God more clearly. Mm, Those are great recommendations. That's great. Megan, how can people go out and get your book and connect with you? Yeah, well, my my book is available pretty much everywhere you buy books these days. And you can connect with me at my website, MeganLarissaGood.com. I'm actually giving away a free ebook right now called Reading Scripture with Jesus. If you are wanting to learn to to read scripture in a a new way, if that's a new concept to you, if you go to my website um, and just enter your email, that'll go straight to your inbox. Um, So yeah, I would love to connect with people. Great. I, you know, I really highly recommend Divine Gravity, Sparking a Movement to Recover a Better Christian Story. Uh, Megan, this book is, is great. And I really pray that people read it, they take it to heart and say, we can look more like Jesus as the church. And this time doesn't have to be something that we're afraid of, that that Jesus is is here, he's with us, um, and that he can lead us into this this new place and this new time uh, where we can look like and live like we are faithful to him. We can embody him within the culture, in community. We could disagree with one another and still have unity. Uh, we could follow the discernment of the Holy Spirit as we, we move forward. We could have a, a cross-shaped power that we could have a power under, not a power over. Uh, we could have all of these things that we've been talking about, and I know we can, and we could do this. Um, and so I pray that that happens as we move forward um, and that people take it to heart. So thank you for this work. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, and thank you for this conversation. It was fantastic. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great 
week.